You are listening to the Mom and Dad Podcast. A podcast about balance, growth, and navigating through your 20s and 30s. All right, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Mom and Dad Podcast. Today we are going over investing, finances, and cryptocurrency, which if you are new to the game, a lot of this might go over your head. If you are not, I think that you may be able to find some valuable information in here. Hopefully it's valuable to people who are who are new or who don't understand it, but I, I hope it wasn't it, it doesn't go too far over people's heads well, because I it think is something worthy of people's investigation. I think this is on the cusp of like base level knowledge and then maybe a couple fluffies here and there of (laughs) fluffies that's what i do i make up words (laughs) fluffy okay what more am i looking for a couple of more slightly more advanced yeah topics okay level two stuff level three so he sprinkles in some of that but this is really where justin shines (laughs) he spends a lot of time um he invests a lot of time in learning about this stuff and investing and um yeah he knows his stuff and disclaimer we put a disclaimer at the end of this episode but let's put one here too yeah because we are not financial advisors we are not advising you to really do anything with your money like you do you um but we encourage you to do your own research and validate or invalidate the information that we share right so um before we get into it all i know is we filmed the intro at the end of the episode Mm -hmm. so all i'm thinking right now is that we're gonna watch buffy the vampire in in the next couple minutes and we are on slayer don't mislead people sorry buffy the vampire slayer and we are on season three and the second season was so long. And it they was kept twi- going. They're all 22 episodes. I looked. Oh, really? 22 episodes. Like, what were they thinking in the 90s? I don't know. They're Who, just like, let's keep going. Yeah, we need to, we need to make it 22 well, episodes long. Here's the thing. The difference between the 90s and now, like, TV shows, is there's usually a plot throughout the episodes. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole entire season is a storyline but in the 90s it was like okay we're gonna throw a monster in this kind of monster in this episode and that's gonna be the plot of that episode specifically Buffy and then the next episode is gonna be a different monster and there's gonna be a plot for that monster you know so that may just be bad storytelling are you saying Buffy the Vampire is bad storytelling? Quit calling her Buffy the Vampire. She is a vampire, vampire slayer. slayer. That's I the highest so insult you can give a slayer. <laughs> it's to call him a vampire. Okay, well, she dated one, so. Yeah, but we saw how that worked out. No spoilers. No. But the idea is, so, I, I think the thing with Buffy is that, and I, I, was a, I was a hardcore Buffy fan growing up, I think. I don't remember exactly, but I remember watching it every Tuesday with my friend Kevin. Okay, you're so cool. You did it first. I did it first. <laughs> anyway, so I'm an, I'm kind of an authority on Buffy is what I'm saying here. But the idea is it does continue to a cohesive storyline, but just not very well. Like each yeah, episode, like, is, they don't really flesh out the bad guys. 
they don't explain the backstory. They don't really tie things together. They can have an episode where Buffy launches a rocket launcher in the middle of a crowded mall with hundred, literally hundreds of witnesses, no police interviews and at all. And then the next, <laughs> the next episode, the police are like all over her because in a quiet of library in the school where she's just having a fist fight with someone. Like, how yeah. did the cops hear about that? And they're <laughs> yeah. there when you can be launching rocket launchers, literally a shoulder RPG rocket launcher in the middle of a mall. It's and no one sees. It's that dang principal. That's that I'm principal saying. is out to get her. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. But now she's going off. She's she's done with high this school. This is what they do. Well, this is what they do is they're like, okay, to episode 22, final episode is approaching. We need to start figuring out how the season is going to end. <laughs> That's exactly what they did. Like, okay, we're at the sudden, brink of something. We need to change. Yep. Bleepity blop, turn bloppity bloop, and now here we are. You know, like yep. that was totally, I was blindsided yeah. <laughs> completely. It did very, very quickly I'll, escalate in the last, last like, three episodes. Last thing I have to say about this is when Justin and I watch this show, we literally are always saying to each other, like, don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. Because we'll be like, why did this? And it's like, no, just don't ask. Cause you, have, you have to just, you have to, you have to just be on, along for the ride with yeah. Buffy. It's a good ride, though. It is so entertaining. It, it's it's funny. It's kind of '90s quirky comedy. Mm-hmm. Xander's really funny. All I know is everything Buffy wears is back, which is so funny. It's like get your all own, the kids are wearing. Up, like Buffy people clothes. just aren't creative anymore with fashion. They just recycle old trends, and they don't even know that Buffy is like the icon of that f- style. That's how everyone dressed back then, and now they're just. Making she, clothes that look like that again and telling people that it's cool when well, I don't think it looked cool back then they and know, I don't think it looks cool now for okay. the record. Well, it's none of your business. <laughs> so what people decide to wear. Um, I still can be opinionate. I can have my own opinions whether whether or not it's cool. Okay. Cool to you. But I, I will say they do know it's recycled because literally they thrift it all. Like thrifting is the hype thrifting is the new aeropostle yeah basically is so that how you pronounce it aeropostle aeropostle yeah <laughs> the whole aeropostle had on me just weeping <laughs> inside joke okay well you guys i that was a lot i'm so sorry we, we digress took you there. let's get back on track um, let's get on the straight and narrow finance train cryptocurrency train and let's get into it let's do it so growing up how did you view money i don't know i feel like i viewed it like any other teenager did maybe (laughs) i didn't really talk about money with my friends so i don't know the difference of how we viewed it but like high school it was like, okay, well, can I afford going to Taco Bell for lunch? Like, do I have enough cash to go to Taco Bell mm-hmm. and maybe get a Black Rock as well? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was my perception of money. Like, can I afford to do the little things mm-hmm. as high schoolers would do? Could, could I afford to go to the $20 that it takes to get into 
um, fear fright town or whatever you know that haunted house yeah and like sometimes it also wasn't me like sometimes i would go to my parents and be like hey do you have 20 dollars?" you know Mm -hmm. so i feel like it was for maybe that's kind of like an average way that i viewed money at least in high school yeah and then after high school it still wasn't much different obviously i was working at some points out of high school and um donating plasma when i was in college you know it was all just trying to get by Mm -hmm. but for me it wasn't something that i necessarily had to worry about because if i had to fall back on my parents i had that comfort Mm -hmm. so that was kind of my perception of money what about you yeah i remember being like i got a job when i was 16 working at white's country meats and i i had like I don't know, I made like $400 a week. Mm-hmm. And I just had all the money in the world. Like I was like, I'm never going to spend all this. <laughs> $400 a week? Yeah. And now you have a wife and a child and you're like, wow. Yeah, it's like it, the, it, things change. Obviously, you don't yeah. have as many expenses, but it, it was just, it, it's crazy to think back on how much I thought that that was at the time. I was like, yeah. I could save this up forever. Like I'm going to be a millionaire. <laughs> And then, Gosh. you know, I I think that same, I don't know, I think that same concept continued on into college when I first started going to college because I went to community college to save money. And so I was like, oh, it's community college. It's cheap. I'll just take out student loans. And they would give you student loans and then they would give you like too much so that you had money for spending, which I think now is an absolutely horrible idea. So when my... My good friend, and maybe she's listening to this, but I don't remember how she did it, but I'm pretty sure she like traveled with some of her loans. I I totally, I'm spacing what exactly she did, but she like used portions of it, but she was so smart that she was, she was just like, she knew what she was doing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a stupid thing. It was like a, I'm working the system kind of thing. (laughs) But you're really just working yourself because you're you're just borrowing money from yourself because it doesn't seem like when you're and I did the same thing. I was like, oh, this is free spending money. This is great. I'll pay it back someday. But that's like a long time from now and I'll have a really good paying job and, you know, things will be fine. And so I just every semester I took out a new loan and I was like, oh, this is this is easy. I don't know why people think college is such a big deal. (laughs) And then. I went on a mission and I came back and started going to a state school and Portland state, which is more of like a, you know, a commuter school, but I started selling door to door. And so I, I wanted to start paying cash for school. And once I started paying cash for school, it dawned on me how much money I owed from all the loans I'd taken out. And I was like, I was such an idiot. This took so much work to save up the money for this semester or for this year. And I was like, I just, I already have like three years worth of school loans that I racked up just being an idiot, thinking that it was just free money and I wouldn't have to pay it. You know, it would be fine to pay it back later. And I think that that is something that definitely needs to change because we're just setting people up with like a ball and chain the day they graduate. 
and they don't realize it. Like, I don't think people, I don't think young people are in, <laughs> like there's that John Mulaney, uh, oh, what is it? There's the John Mulaney um, joke yeah. where he's talking about he, someone made him sign for his, his, his college application and he was wearing like gym shorts and had no lawyer or his parents present. And it's just like people, young kids should not be allowed to just make that decision to borrow that money without really understanding, you know, the, the cost of it. Well, that's the thing. I think that mindset is changing. I don't think people are focused on, well, maybe they are. I'm not in that stage of life anymore, but like I need to go to college, you know, to get a good job. Like we obviously have proved that that's not the only way to make money and to make a living. Mm -hmm. So at least like when Remy, who knows when Remy is at that stage of life, when he's out of school, like what that's going to look like. Like are colleges even going to be a thing? Like I'm sure there'll be like specialty stuff, but like other than that, it's like we could probably learn it all online for free. Yeah, I I think there's definitely going to be a lot more opportunity there's definitely going to be a lot more opportunities and like you look at something like the google certifications that are coming out now where you can take like a five six month course online at your own time and it costs a couple hundred bucks and you get a certificate that people are going to respect because it's from google and that gets your foot in the door for your first job and well maybe well, no, it, it does. Like Not people, even a degree gets people jobs. But like certificates with in, in a thriving economy like Utah, for example, it definitely like helps. Like I've seen testimonials of people who go to, you know, these like six week coding boot camps and then they get a job at like the company I work for. Um, I don't know. I feel like the poster people are the ones getting jobs. That, yeah, it's that's probably to true say. to an extent, but I, I've say. seen enough of it, enough people getting their first job or at least getting their foot in the door at a good place that they can grow and, and build their career to believe that the the certificate system is probably going to be like learn just enough to get your foot in the door and then get another certificate for something that's very focused on what you're trying to learn as opposed to this holistic approach that higher education has always been feeding us which is like oh well you want to get your bachelor's in liberal arts well, you have to take two all years of science classes. and you have to take yeah all these all these other things so that you're quote unquote well-rounded, which in my opinion is really just so that we can force you to, to pay a minimum that we deem necessary so that we can get more money out of you, which we won't go into the flaws with higher education too much on this one. But I think it's definitely the more focused sort of sniper shot I want to learn this, therefore I'm going to take a certification class in this topic so that I can start working in this field and then expand my knowledge from there. I think that's going to be much more of a thing as time goes on. Yeah, I just think it's going to be hard to break out of because the system of higher education wants us there. You know, they want us spending that money. But we'll see. Yeah, I think there's always going to be a market for it, especially for like the state school college experience but for people like me who never cared about a college experience like I think it's going to be more popular to just go a more more focused route but then again like you're probably you're not going to be able to do the certificate method 
to become a doctor. So like higher education. Well, is that's always what I said. Pl- specific schools. Mm-hmm. Did you finish on your idea of money? Yeah, I mean that's. I think that. I I don't think that people can really understand the value of money until they have to support themselves and pay their debts, which is why I am not going to be, well, I don't know, we can talk about it, but I don't plan on paying for Remy's college because I think that's just yeah, setting we, him up for... First time we have talked about this on ever. It is. Yeah, well, maybe <laughs> it's a good time to talk to, about it. We've never had to we talk about it a little bit. We've talked about it a little bit. Well, it just totally depends on what he wants to do. But are you saying like you would never pay for anything for him? Because, you know, like just as someone would save up for college for their child, like whether it's just a general savings account for them to like have a head up or whatever. And I, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm against that, but I think that they, there needs to be some stake put in by him. Otherwise he's not going to, he's not going to learn to value it. Yeah. Or he just doesn't need to know. Right? Like, if he doesn't know that he will be taken care of. Yeah, that's true. Make it a surprise. <laughs> yeah, hey. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> Here's this for you. <laughs> no, I don't think... I will, we'll talk about this more. We've never really we don't had need to, to broadcast it publicly. We've never really had to think about this yet. He's only... Year and a half year old. Year and a half old, so... But I guess that, you know, that transitions us into the next question. What lessons have you learned about being smarter financially i think as we've become (laughs) grown-ups and just like having a real job i think it's like my perspective of money has obviously changed like there's and i don't want to get into this yet but especially like getting into cryptocurrencies you just realize how much money is out there Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of money out there and like money just gets it can just get tossed around so easily you know whether you're just like paying for a meal or you're investing in something or I don't know you know like money can get thrown away it can be it can come back what am I trying to say here it's just it's not just like okay i I want to get Taco Bell. So I need to have enough for Taco Bell. Mm -hmm. There's just so much more to it now that it's, it's almost like a game. I think it's a game. I love playing with money (laughs) personally. And I think that's that for me, the the lesson that I learned after I, after we bought our, our first house. And I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is since, you know, we bought our house and, Actually, the biggest thing is getting is is having a job that I get paid by monthly because with door to door independent contractor, you get paid a little bit every two weeks, but it's it's really just like a cash advance. And then you get two big checks, one at the end of October and one at the end of December. And so it felt like I was really rich for most of the year. And then I would just like that money would whittle away. And I never really had a concept of month to month 
how much money was going in and how much money was coming out because I would just be like, okay, this is what my total expenses are for the year. So I'll just set that aside. And then all this other money is, you know, money to invest or money to play with. Honestly, it's, it wasn't super realistic for us because we had to just like, especially with sales, you don't know how much you're going to sell. So we would just have to like make up our yearly salary and then like try and budget off of that. Mm -hmm. So it was just very strange and it's just not, it's not realistic. And I think the other thing was we didn't under, it's for, for us at least, it was really hard to think about budgeting because you had to forecast for the entire year. And then like on a monthly basis, we never tracked our, we just never tracked our spending. And I think that was the biggest thing when we started work, when I started working this, uh, an actual W2 job which is still a sales job and relies on commissions, but you're getting paid every two weeks. And so you can actually forecast like if I, I used to just think, Oh, if I need to buy something, I'll buy it this month. Even, you know, I, I didn't even pay attention to how much money was going out. I'd be like, cause you were thinking um, at the whole total, like the mm-hmm. yearly total. And I, and I was also thinking like, well, I'm going to have to buy it next month. What's the difference between buying it this month and buying it next month. Mm-hmm. But you, I realized that, the the magic of budgeting is that if you set a fixed amount that you're not going to go above this month, you actually end up spending less over the entire year because you don't realize how much of those. Oh well, I'm have to get, I'm gonna have to buy it next month. I might as well just buy it now. How much that adds up and how much more you end up overspending. And so if you fix yourself to, okay, I hit my limit. That thing that I want to buy this month, I have to wait until next month to buy it. And it seems like such a small thing, but it's so revolutionary. Like you really do. You're like, oh, I I actually am in control of how much money I'm spending. So I can actually forecast accurately how much money I really need to be setting aside for this and for that. So that to me was the biggest thing was set a fixed amount and don't go above it. Because if you just have to wait until next month and then you can put it onto that month's expenses. Mm Mm-hmm which was hard for us to figure out while doing door to door. Well, why didn't we even think about that? We, I mean, we could have, well, okay, back, no, we this is what we did. This is what happened is you would have these crazy spreadsheets that you would come to me and you'd be like, okay, here's the budget for everything. And I'm like, I, I don't even know. I, am I supposed to memorize all this? Like, what am I looking at right now? And it wasn't necessarily like super accurate and we were going off a, a mystery salary and it was like, how, how does this work? Yeah. But then once it was, um, there's an app that we use and there, well, there's tons of free apps, but, um, basically every time we purchase something, we just put it in the app and then we can track how much we're spending. So that's been really helpful to have a limit, know what the limit is, and then just track every single payment. And it almost has become like a, like muscle memory. Once I spend something, I'm like, okay, $4 check into my, into my app. Yeah. That's been super helpful too. And what I do is I like, say I'm going to the grocery store and right after I check out, like I haven't even left. And I feel so bad every time I like pull my phone out as the ladies checking all my groceries because I feel like it's just so impolite Uh but um 
I pull my phone out and I put it in, even though, because I know if I don't do it right in that moment, I'm going to forget and I'm like, oh, well, okay, it's fine, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's like, no, got to do it right when the money comes out. Yeah, that app has been really, really cool. It's just a simple app. You just put in the amount that you spend and it tracks it for the month. And it's a free app. And every time it pops up with the, do you like this app? Do you get that notification? Probably. And it says, say yes or no. Every time I say no, and I feel bad because (laughs) I really do love the app. But every time I go to yes, it's like, okay, well, leave us a review. And I'm like, I don't want to go through all that. So I say no. (laughs) I'm like, but I do really like you. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really great because it does it allows us to see exactly how much we're spending. And I think that that can be that can seem daunting to people. It seemed daunting to me for the longest time. But what I've realized is you have fixed expenses and then you have variable expenses. So every month your fixed expenses are the ones that are set like your mortgage or your rent or you know you can f- figure out pretty accurately how much money you spend on groceries or gas and utilities and all of that. Those are your fixed expenses that don't change from month to month. And you really don't have to keep track of those. You just have to keep track of your variable expenses because you just, you might make a spreadsheet, for example, or just add it up manually of this. I spend three grand a month on fixed expenses or whatever it is. And you know that your total that you can spend is, you know, the fixed expenses plus this fixed amount of variable expenses. And so variable expenses would be like anything that, you know, we, for example, well, gas or going out to eat dinner or buying sweets or. I would consider groceries and variable because sometimes I spend like less than a hundred dollars and sometimes I spend over a hundred dollars. So I like, that's why I like you have your budget. I have my budget Mm -hmm. because we know like I'm the one who does the grocery shopping and Mm -hmm. I'm the one who has to buy house essentials and you have to get gas too, but I get gas and I take Remy out and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So like we have our budgets based off of what we do basically. Yeah. Um, so if I have this specific budget, I can almost plan out my variables for myself. So Justin doesn't have any part in like, if I spend $400 on groceries one week, which is insane, I would never do that. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's on me. And I have to know that the next week I have to spend $2, you know? Yeah. So it's just, it's been life changing. Mm-hmm. how we've made it just so simple um yeah in the grand scheme of things it's just been really good yeah and another part of that that i think has been helpful is having like a frequent flyer mile credit card and you just have a fixed amount that can be your variable expenses and we share that card so we have an american express card for the frequent flyer miles you just have your fixed amount of variable expenses that you allow yourself to to do each month. You have your budget. I have mine. And then we pay it off every month and get a bunch of frequent flyer miles out of it. So we get a couple of free flights home every year because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that has also helped us to have like our Amex bucket. So this is our variable expense bucket and it's both going onto the same card and we're both tracking it separately. But that, I, I think that's an added way to get some some benefit out of it and make it a little bit more sort of separated from again that fixed expense column Um, and we're not saying this this is like a one-way street 
Like there's so many different ways people go about their finances. Um, But this has just been, we're just sharing our experience. Yeah. And it's worked, it's worked really well for us. Yeah. The simplicity for me is, has, is what has worked the best Mm -hmm. because before it was just so complicated. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, and I still have spreadsheets of everything, but the only thing we have to track is the variable expenses in every month as well as, and really we can wrap all of our expenses into the variable expenses or all of the ones that are like upcoming trips or anything that doesn't fit into that fi- that fixed expenses. We just know that we have to spread it out or, you know, we have to just make sure that we're staying under that, that amount for our variable expenses every month and we're fine. And, that, and we have control over our, over our lives. Mm-hmm which I never had with door to door. I never knew how much money I was uh, like how on track I was to sticking with a budget. Even though we set a budget, I set a budget all the time, but we never like I never knew where we were with relation to it. So I think that's a common pitfall that people fall into. So what about investing? What was your take on investing growing up? Did you ever even think about it? Did it ever cross your mind? No. I I've always wanted to start a business like before we were married I've always wanted to start my own business um but I've never had the financial backing for it Mm -hmm. and I think that's obviously a way to invest your money and that's something that I didn't even realize was investing it just seemed like something I wanted to do but now like right now I'm like that's something that like people do they if they have a wad of cash like they put it into something they don't hold on to it they put it into something to where it can compound and become something bigger so that's I I didn't really understand that idea I just wanted to start a business Um, but the whole like compounding and investing portion of it is something that I now I can understand Yeah, I used to, when I first started investing, the first thing that I did was I opened a a Roth IRA and I put 50 bucks a month into it. And it was a managed Roth IRA. So I paid, you know, basically a fund manager to, to manage it. And I personally, I think that you need to be really careful because there's a lot of misinformation about investing that... I, I highly recommend there's a book by Tony Robbins called Unshakable where he goes over all of these really, really sound financial investing principles. There's also a much longer version called Money Master the Game. I remember when you were going through that book. Oh my gosh. That, it, it literally took On me our two years. It took me two years to read that book. I kid you not. I remember the flight on our honeymoon. You were like, I need to, I need to get through this book. But in, in, in that, like, I feel like that is, it is a turning point in my life when I made the decision to read, to, to gut it out and read that book. Because when I first started reading it, I had a really deep desire to be financially savvy, but I feel like there's this stigma that you, you can't, you can't become financially savvy after reading one book. So you might as well not try. You might as well leave that to someone who studied it in college, spent four years learning about it. At least that's the way that I viewed it. But for me, 
just reading that book and seeing how much my What's understanding the book called grew. Again? It's called Tony Robbins Money Master the Game. I don't know. It's if they, the one that was like this thick. Wasn't yeah, it's it? huge. I read it on on Kindle, so I was reading it digitally, but it it blew my mind. And that was that was not only a a finan- financial turning point in in my life as far as becoming more financially savvy, but that was also just a learning and confidence building turning point in my life where I realized that granted it was a 700 page book and it was chock full of just, just really, really sound investing principles and tons of interviews with investing legends and financial, um, sort of gurus. But I realized that you can really completely transform your understanding about a topic from reading one book. And you don't have to Depending be... Depending on what the book is. Yeah. And I'm not saying like you read Harry Potter and suddenly you're just like an, an, an expert on all things literature. But if you... You shouldn't be afraid of just like picking up a book and reading it because you think, oh, I'm never going to be able to be become savvy or an expert in that field because you just never know what's going to happen from from getting through it. And I think just finishing... A book, even a book about something that is really dull to most people, like finance. Um, it, I don't know. It, for me, it was just a turning point. Yeah. So on that note, finishing that book, one of the statistics from the book is that you have a four percent. So there's only four percent of actively managed mutual funds in in the the world of U.S. finance. There's only 4% of them that outdo the S&P 500 or the, the Dow Jones or the NASDAQ that outdo the, the stock market on a yearly basis. So what that, what that means is you pick a fund and you have a 4% chance that it's going to do better than just putting your money in what's called an index fund. And an index fund just buys a little chunk of the whole market and it's not trying to outdo the market. It's just trying to mimic exactly what the, the broader market will do. And then you have these managed funds, which are basically you pay people to try and get a better return than the market gives you. And so these people will buy and sell and buy and sell and try and outdo the, They're trying to get a better return. So my experience with that was I put it in this actively managed fund for four years. And at the end of four years, the stock market had returned 25%. So if I would have put in my my money 4 years later it would have been my my principal plus 25%. I got my principal plus 4% from this managed fund. 4.19% over the course of 4 years. And so that but you was you could have had 25%. I could have had 25%. And that sounds hard to believe, but not when you think about it as and this is something that's people don't understand they think that everything is 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 equal just to put it in perspective if you go to vegas and you play blackjack and you get you get your first card and it's a 10 and you you say hit me and it's a um it's another 10 your chances of pulling an ace out of that card on the next turn to get 21 instead of of busting or what's it called busting yeah 
Um, I don't know. I don't know how to play it's blackjack. That game. You know, you go over twenty one, you 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 bust. I think it's bust. I don't know. I don't play much blackjack. But anyway, you're at twenty. <laughs> Only one card in the deck is worth worth one. That's the ace. It gets you to twenty one. Your chances of pulling an ace on that next card, the probability is eight percent. So you have double the chances of pulling an ace on that next card than you do of picking the the four percent of mutual funds that are actually going to outdo the stock market. And those mutual funds change every year. So it's really, really hard to find someone that will outdo the market. And so m- the best practice and what I did after that period. And that's what hed- hedge funds do? Not hedge funds necessarily. So hedge funds is is a really, really broad term that entails a lot of different things. But Okay, go be, back to your other point because sure. I'm going to lose we, track. Yeah, we, it'll get com- confusing if we go into hedge funds. Actively managed mutual funds. That's that's what we're talking about. Is a, it, there's a very small chance that you're going to get one that outdoes the market, because there's every time they buy and sell, they're incurring transaction fees. So what you're talking fees. about, what you're talking about is investing in the stock market. Yeah, I don't even remember how we got on this topic. I don't either, and it's like totally going over my head. Okay, so so I'll keep it really, really simple. Keep it simple to, and maybe not blackjack. Well, okay, I understood that, but I don't know how to play blackjack. Yeah, how did we get here? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't have any idea. We were talking about investing. Oh, I, I was explaining my my first interaction with investing was after I finished that book by Tony Robbins. I took a look at my investment fund that I've been investing 50 bucks a month into for four years. And I realized I was getting dismal returns. And I called up my broker who had conned me into getting into this fund in the first place. And he was just trying to make me, he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is a really great fund. I was like, what are you talking? It's a 4% versus a 25% return. And anyway, I pulled my money out. And from then on, I, I managed my own money. Um, not to say that people need to do that. You can get a good return just putting your money in the stock market. Um, where people are worried nowadays is with inflation, which I don't know if we want to go down that that hole. What Justin says all the time is that cash is worthless. Cash is trash, to quote Ray Dalio. <laughs> And, and a lot of people, I, I talked to so many people that they have a ton of money. A, a guy that I worked with, $30,000 in savings, sitting in a savings account. A savings account that was maybe returning him 0.25% annually. So his money was growing by 0.25% annually. And the idea that inflation is between one and a half to 2% and you're making 0.25%. So each year your money is decreasing in value by 1.5 to 2%, but the bank is paying you 0.25%. If that makes sense. Yeah. You're, you're losing, you know, 1.5 to 1.75% per year just by having your money sitting in a bank. Account. So did you advise him? I told, yeah, I was like, get your money out. Honestly, like, there are a million other places that you can put your money, but inflation is killing you if you're sitting in cash. And that's what people don't understand. And then the other factor of it that people are even more worried about is with the current state of the economy, we've just printed more money 
than we we've ever done in, in the history of the United States in this past year. And if you look at, there's a chart called the M1 money supply, which is the U.S., the total amount of U.S. money that's either been printed or is in bank accounts. In the, if you look up a chart, just Google chart of M1 money supply, you'll see that it's pretty much, it's, it's a, a steady rising slope. It's not very fast. It's not very steep. And then in 2008, it makes a pretty sharp curve upward. And then in 2020, it's basically straight up. And it, it, it will it'll blow your mind to think about it because hyperinflation is something is basically where your our, our currency becomes it just raises prices so fast that in certain it can cause runaway inflation and that's what everyone's is, worrying about which is basically like if you think about there's been several very high profile cases of hyperinflation that have plagued different countries throughout history one of them is germany and so after world war ii germany had to sign the versailles treaty which basically said that all of the nations that Germany wronged during the war, now Germany had to put money into a, an international settlement fund to be distributed to all of those people to make reparations for all the damage that Germany had done through World War II. And not only that, but Germany couldn't pay into that fund with their German currency. I guess it was the franc at that time. Um, they had to transfer it into what was called hard currency or currency that people wanted, which I think was the dollar at this point, um, either the British pound or the U.S. dollar. But they had to transfer that money into those currencies and pay a really terrible exchange rate. So they were getting ha- killed in the exchange rate. And then they just couldn't, they, they weren't making enough because no one wanted to do business with them. Their exports were terrible, things like that. They, they had to resort to printing money to pay these obligations. But they printed so much money that eventually there there was, just with the basics of supply and demand economics, they got to the point where there, there was too much money and their money was just becoming worth less every, you know, every day. And it even got to, to one point where, um, what was it, the, at the height of its inflation, so this is from Investopedia, it's about, it's an, an article titled, What Are Some Historic Examples of Hyperinflation? Investopedia is pretty straightforward with their titles. But they say, at its height, hyperinflation in Weimar Germany reached rates of more than 30,000% per month of inflation. That's price rising, prices rising by 30,000% per month. It says, causing prices to double every few days. So think about that. Think about going to the grocery store and the price of milk doubles every two days. So it even got to the point where some there's some people with photos. There, there's some photos of Germans that were burning cash to stay warm because it was cheaper to burn the cash than to use the cash to buy wood to burn. So with this happening, the state of the world right now in inflation approaching or is it here so what's predicted people are really worried because the u.s and roughly around the world we've added 20 to 25 trillion dollars of additional debt and just just through throughout 2020 through now 
And that's that's just an insane amount of money to print out of thin air. And so people are worried that that can cause asset prices to rise uncontrollably as people are just, you know, they'll, they'll raise the price, raise the price, raise the price, and soon the money that they're using to buy those assets becomes worthless and people causes the assets themselves to become worthless and, and it can cause a, a chain reaction of terrible things that basically just make the the money that people are using worthless and so people will try and flood to you know gold or bitcoin or real estate or things like that um but like in the 30s in, in, in the 20s or 30s the the u.s government banned gold because people they wanted people to keep their money in the u.s dollar to keep it steady after the depression and so it's just there, there's tons of things that people are worried about whereas if you talk to certain economists they'll say it, inflation is not a big deal because the federal reserve can raise interest rates which makes it more expensive to borrow which kind of just puts the brakes on the economy and inflation kind of corrects and drops back down so more important than inflation is the debt burden so the total amount of debt, because there there becomes a tipping point where where the total amount of debt just becomes too much for us, for people to pay back. And it can go on a long time. So like if you think about a couple, like a family, families can, most many, many families in, in the U.S., for example, are living beyond their means, where they have two car payments, they have a house payment, they're not necessarily making enough money to pay for all of it, but who cares because it's just payments and they can make the payments. Um, and so they're in all of this debt and they can make that last for a long time by maybe refinancing or by you know taking out another credit card or you know a, a home equity line of credit to pay for things. And so they just sort of circle the money around and there's a lot of ways that you can restructure debt to keep borrowing and keep living beyond your means but eventually when you are when you're living in debt you're borrowing from your future self so you're creating a moment in the future like if you're living if you're spending more than you make now you are creating a moment in the future when you will have to spend less than you make to correct that that error that you've essentially created for yourself and people don't understand that concept and they much less understand it on a on a national scale. So the United States is doing the same thing. We've printed seven trillion dollars. We've created a moment in the future where we're going to have to spend less than we earn and pay that money down at some point. And the higher that that debt burden climbs, the more risk that it can drop. You know, really in a really catastrophic way. And so that's what a lot of people are worried about. That's what the the play that's why cryptocurrency is becoming so popular so let's get into cryptocurrency what is it so it is a public simply put (laughs) yeah we can get into what is it it's a public source immutable ledger that posts transactions in a chain or in blocks that are chained together numbers so yeah, basically or letters. Nah, I won't go too much into it. It's it's yeah. I don't want to go too much into symbols? it. Symbols. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's numbers. It's it's people, miners or nodes, for Bitcoin, for example, which is what's called proof of work. So there's different ways that cryptocurrency works. 
but proof of work is one consensus method mechanism that they call it or method and miners compete to solve cryptographic puzzles where they're basically solving these really complex um they're rearranging numbers to get to basically get them to line up in a certain way or, or find one certain number and get it into a certain spot to find your account number to find the well it's called the knots it's it's the number that if they can get the or the numbers to rearrange in such a way that they solve the puzzle it'll it'll give them the answer and and once they find the answer they will publish that to the blockchain which is a public ledger so anyone can go back and review the the entire history of bitcoin transactions if they want it's public source and it's also in order for someone to start at the beginning of the chain and work their way back if they wanted to mess with a record or they wanted to try and undo a transaction and send it to themselves, like rob someone, for example, they would have to do all of the previous puzzles over again to get back to that point in time when they could undo and mess with that transaction. And the amount of comp computational power to get there would just would wreck their profit margins. So it's so expensive to tamper with that it's it's extremely secure despite the fact that it's completely public and everyone can view it. And no one person is is over it. It's not a company. It's a group it's of Wells anyone. Fargo. Yeah, it's a group of any any nodes that have enough electrical and computational power to be able to to mine. And there's some argument that, you know, these miners can all group together and anyway, we won't get into that. But the idea is there are only and there will only ever be, there actually aren't, there's 18 million Bitcoin right now. There will only ever be 21, bit, 21 million Bitcoin total. Whereas if you look at a currency like the US dollar, there are... 20 i don't know 20 trillion i don't know exactly it's no it's like seven seven trillion u.s dollars in the 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 m1 money chart which is not the total amount of u.s dollars but it's the total amount that's in bank accounts um seven trillion and they printed several trillion this year right i think the total debt burden is like 20 trillion somewhere in that range um but the idea being if they can print the the they printed like six trillion dollars this year. If they can print six trillion new units of a currency in one year, the the currency is very, very susceptible to hyperinflation. And so the idea with Bitcoin is that it's a it's public, it's divisible, you can divide Bitcoin into a point 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 zero 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 one bitcoin um you can transfer it across countries in 10 minutes it's unlike gold where you have to like if you want to transfer you want to divide gold you have to chop it up right and then you have to <laughs> <laughs> send it someone and it takes you know it's expensive to store it's expensive to transport if for example the government puts another ban on gold and they want to seize people's gold because they need people to put money into the fiat currency of the government to keep it stable they you you it's hard to just pick up the gold and move it to the Cayman Islands tomorrow, right? You, it it would be hard to get it out of the country, whereas you could just send your Bitcoin in you know ten minutes. So, the the idea is that Bitcoin is a much superior store of value, and even though it's extremely volatile right now, 
once it all of them have been minted and there's only a fixed supply of them, the value of it can't be subject. It's deflationary in nature at that point. There won't be any more of them. Therefore, the supply can't run away and the demand is the only thing that can increase. So there, that is what people are expecting and, and, and hoping for when they're investing in Bitcoin. Well, most people. A lot of people are just YOLOing money into it because they don't understand what it is and they just want to get rich. Um, but there, there's a ton of, there's several hundred, uh, probably a hundred thousand other crypt, or tens of thousands of other cryptocurrency projects that use either that same technology or one that's like it. Um, but that's really at, at its source what Bitcoin was created for and what its, its use case is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I could talk about it all night. But I have I've heard the explanation of Bitcoin maybe a dozen times. At least. And every time I hear it, it's like I learn something new. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> really That's is. good. But yeah, if you think about it, it's like people... The thing that confuses me, uh-huh. and we don't need to get into it, because what time are we at? 48. Yeah, we're way past our time. The thing that confuses me is the different like roles of each coin. Mm-hmm. Like Bitcoin is a different role than Ethereum and like you know they all have their different roles. So mm-hmm. getting into that stuff like I don't and I wonder if people even understand that stuff. I feel like people are just like being told like oh you need to invest in this one, you know, because they've heard about cryptocurrency and you know like how how deep do they even really know about it? Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing about that, and this is a this is a good lesson for investing in general, is the safest, most low maintenance, and most effective way for the amount of maintenance that you give it way of investing is called dollar cost averaging, where you buy a little bit every month of something that you believe in fundamentally. You believe it has you do your research, you believe it's a solid investment, you buy a little bit every month. If you have $10,000 to throw into it, you don't throw it all in at once. You buy a little bit every month so that you can get an average cost basis that is going to be, in almost every case, better than if you just YOLO'd your money into it. So the And the reason being is that human psychology, especially with investing, is really, really interesting because people, if, if they aren't careful and they don't know what they're doing, in almost every case, they will buy high and sell low. Just because people don't normally start paying attention to an investment they until it, everyone's talking about it. Yeah, they get in when the hype is high. Yeah, and that is normally if, if someone who isn't very well versed in investing has heard about something, that's a good sign Dogecoin. that that thing is probably about to, to correct. And so if you're just you know putting your money into something because you heard someone, you know, it's a meme coin or it's you know, a meme stock. Or Elon stock Musk or, is going to be on SNL. Yeah, something, well, there, there's also you know buying the news and selling the hype, which is a, a pretty effective trading strategy, which toys off of, it plays off of this same human emotion because you know that once the masses hear about something, they're going to ride the hype and most of the people that are riding the hype don't know what they're doing and they don't know when to get out 
And so they'll ride the hype thinking that it's a rocket ship and it's going to go up forever. And, and there comes a point where you reach a point of what's called euphoria where think people will think that it's going to keep going forever. And that is the moment that it is absolutely going to drop. And once it drops, people think it's going to go to zero. And so they sell. And so they keep, and people will do this. I've done this. Even knowing all these things, I've done this because it's a, it's emotional. You feel like you're going to, it's FOMO. I'm going to miss out. It's going up. You buy. Oh, it's going down. Oh, I don't want to lose all my money. You sell. And then they just repeat the process over and over, which is why if you look at, for example, Peter Magellan ran, or Peter Lynch ran Fidelity's, Fidelity's an, uh, an investment brokerage. They had a fund called the Magellan Fund that Peter Lynch was a fund manager and he was a unicorn, ran it for two decades, three decades, averaged a 23% return on the fund over that entire time, which is near impossible for a fund manager to average a return that great over such a long period of time. The average investor in, in the Magellan Fund returned around 4 to 5% because they did that. They, they would buy in when it was high and they would sell when it dropped. And so dollar cost averaging gives you the ability to pull your ego out of it and to pull away from the hype and say you had $10,000, you hear a ton of hype about something, you get excited, but you only let yourself put a thousand in, put a thousand bucks in, you wait a month, it crashes. You're like, Oh, I'm glad I didn't put the whole 10,000 in. I better put all my money in. No, don't do that. Just put another thousand in next month. And then you see it drops another 20% and you're like, oh, I'm glad I didn't put the whole 10,000 in or the whole 9,000. You put another thousand in and then it goes back up and you just, no matter what the market's doing, you put in a little bit every month. And that way at the end of the year, instead of having an average cost basis of, you know, the peak of the market, you're somewhere in the middle. And so you have a much better chance of seeing the upside or seeing the good returns by just holding on to that and not selling it. So that's, and I've tried many, many different methods of trading. And unless you really have the time to focus on on the hype and reading the markets, even if you know what you're doing, like you, it's very, very hard to beat the returns that you'll get with dollar cost averaging. Well, I asked on my Instagram how many people invest in cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And probably about a third said that they do so if that third is listening to this episode i'm sure they are somewhat versed in this stuff so i think that what you have said even though some of it might go over my head <laughs> which i feel like you talk to me about it all the time i can i can get a gist of what it's about mm-hmm. um i'm not doing i'm not like diving in to research that I think people will be able to take this information and apply it. Or maybe they already know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what books they've read. So. Yeah. I mean, at this point, if, if the majority of people that I see investing in cryptocurrency are, the, are doing so because of hype. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important for people to understand especially in a market like cryptocurrency because the stock market will correct by 10%. Once a year or so, it'll correct by 10%, meaning it goes down by 10%. Cryptocurrency, several times this year, we've already seen 40 40 to 50% drops 
in the entire crypto market. So you can lose half your money overnight in crypto. You can lose all your money if you're, especially if you're buying the hype and, and selling the news as opposed to buying the news and selling the hype, which is what you should do. Um, or really what you should do is just dollar cost average because you, if you're dollar cost averaging, you're protecting yourself against a very, very volatile market. And if you're in crypto, you need to understand because most people, once the hype dies out and we go into a bear market, which is when nothing's really happening, they're going to lose interest. Like even I, I started investing in Bitcoin in 2017 and I totally lost all faith in it in 2018 and 19. But you just stayed. I didn't sell. Yeah, I just, I just, I was like, whatever happens with that will happen, but I am not selling it because I'm a man of principle. But (laughs) when I went like, good thing I didn't sell, right? But the point is, is that if someone that did as much research as I did on it in 2017 could totally lose interest and completely forget about it, disregard it as worthless in my portfolio when it was in a bear market, most other people will do the same when crypto inevitably goes into its next bear market, which could which we could be on the very cusp of. So if people continue to dollar cost average in, especially during a bear market, they'll have really, really good price entry points that they've been buying at really, really good discounts for a long time. And once the next bull market comes, which it invariably will, they're going to see huge returns. And so they're not going to get caught up in the hype. And that's really how you play a volatile market without having to be constantly monitoring it. Just dollar cost average over a long period of time. And you will you will make money unless the market completely disappears and crypto becomes a thing of the past, which I don't think will happen, especially at this point. So there's your lesson on crypto. It was really meant to be more of a conversation, but I just get so well, excited. Well, did we stuff. really think it was going to be a conversation? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I you want, talk about it with me. Like, no, we can yes. talk about okay, it. Okay, we're undermining my... Crypto know-how. My intelligence in crypto. But I would definitely say you are more advanced in this than I am. And rightly so, because you spend a lot of time in this, and I do not. So, anyway. <laughs> well, I think I think this will be a valuable episode. It's, it, it may be something that will go over people's heads because it is so new. Mm-hmm. You know, like the hype, the hype is here. So I think people have heard it and, um, but necessarily like understanding it is another story. So, yeah. And we're not saying invest in crypto, although as n- not speaking as financial advisors, mm-hmm. it, it, you should look into it, but we're saying don't keep your, Disclaimer. don't keep all of your money in a bank account because you, that is by far the worst investment. If there's anything, if you ever talk finances with Justin, the number one thing he will tell you is that cash, cash is, trash. is trash. Every time I hear him talk to anyone, he's like, like if people are like, well, I've got this money. It's like, no, <laughs> you need to do something with that. And, so. and it's just because people don't understand. They don't mm-hmm. understand that they're literally burning up 1% of their money every year. Like the, Which there's doesn't so many, sound... doesn't sound bad, but it compounds. Mm-hmm. Especially when you think about what you could be earning, even in a very secure investment, um, yeah. like a blue chip stock. So Okay. Well, don't know what we that is. We won't go back so. into it, but <laughs> it's like Amazon. It's like a really Part established two. company. 
Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week.